Welcome to the Keep It Clean podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Dane Gregory. The Keep It Clean podcast was developed around an idea of helping to inspire and motivate fellow cleaning professionals by listening to startup stories and histories of others in the business. Twice each month, we will interview industry icons and colleagues and get their story of how they got started in this oftentimes wonderful and sometimes painful business of cleaning things for other people. Hopefully you will like, subscribe, and follow us so you never miss an episode. And we would sure love one of those five-star reviews that I know you're dying to give us. As always, thanks for listening. Carpet cleaning was not Rob's first choice of careers. But like most people, life takes us in whatever path opens up. In 1973, Rob Hanks was attending the University of Utah as a biology major with the intention of becoming a dentist. He discovered, though, that dentistry was not really in the cards for him, so he enrolled in their MBA program. Rob was newly married and needed a way to support a wife and eventually a family. He learned of carpet cleaning from a friend of his in the National Guard unit. With borrowed equipment, Rob tried it out on his own apartment. It seemed very straightforward, so with the blessing of his wife Wendy, they cleaned out her bank account and bought their first carpet cleaning machine. Rob's brother Gordon was in the same position, so they decided to join forces and go into business together cleaning carpets. After a few months in business, he and Gordon both quit college to go full-time into the cleaning operation. Rob and Gordon then recruited their younger brother Dave, and they ran the business together for 42 years. We will hear the story of those 42 years in the body of the Keep It Clean podcast. They sold to a private equity company in 2014, which also owned a Ramsco. The purpose was to consolidate the two companies under the name and management team of Aramsco. Banks Brothers continued to work for Aramsco for two years and then officially retired from the business. Rob has always loved being in the business world, but now wanted to do something really meaningful and started looking for a charity where he could help other people. He was introduced to Operation Underground Railroad and was hooked. Operation Underground Railroad exists to save children from the world of sex trafficking and slavery. Being he was the grandfather of 20 beautiful grandchildren, the Operation Underground Railroad message really hit home. Rob volunteered and was immediately asked to be the volunteer team leader for Salt Lake City. He worked at it every day, leading a group of about 500 volunteers. Rob has recently taken a medical leave from the volunteer position, but plans on being back very soon. If anyone listening to this is interested in joining as a volunteer or in donating to the organization, he highly recommends it. To date, they have rescued over 5,000 children and, working with local law enforcement all over the world, have been instrumental in the arrest of many hundreds of child sex traffickers. You can learn more about the organization at www.ourrescue.org. You can also send Rob an email at tip. That's robhankstip at gmail.com. He would love to talk with you and tell you more about it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Keep It Clean podcast. I am your host, Dane Gregory. Today, we have with us Mr. Rob Hanks. Rob is going to tell us his story about starting up a carpet cleaning company, probably back in the 1970s, I'm going to guess, but I'm sure he'll tell us more about that. So, Rob, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. All righty. Thank you, Dane. I appreciate the opportunity. It's It's been a lot of fun to go back and remember the early years and things. And the, I think the 
the thing I need to remember is that the older I get, the better I was. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think we all can probably subscribe to that theory. So, Rob, let, let me ask you the first question we ask all the guests on the Keep It Clean podcast, and that's basically this. Why did you make the decision to go into the industry that cleans things for other people? Okay, well, I, I think I'd have to say that it was almost accidental. Okay, and I say that because I, I never knew anybody unless they were a son of somebody already in the industry who, who said, I'd really like to grow up and be a carpet cleaner. You know, I, they wanted to be firemen, policemen, cowboys, whatever, but I didn't know anybody that wanted to be a carpet cleaner if they didn't already know the business. So, that, I mean, the way it happened for me is that I, I never even knew that professional carpet cleaning was a thing. I didn't know it existed. I never remember my parents having their carpet cleaned or anything like that. So it all started when I was in college and I was a biology major because I wanted to be a dentist. And a couple of things happened to me in college that kind of led me into this. But the, the first one was when I was in biology and I went to my professor. I was about ready to graduate in biology. I went to a professor and I said, tell me what, if I have a bachelor's in biology, what can I do to find a job? What can I do for a living with a bachelor's in biology? And he said, well, Rob, here's what you need to do. If you've got a bachelor's in biology and you've got a quarter, you can get a cup of coffee. Just be sure you got the quarter. <laughs> so it was, it was one of those moments when I thought, well, this is not looking real good for me. The other thing that happened to me is it was during the Vietnam era. And so I joined the National Guard. And so I went to the National Guard training. And when I came back home, I was put in the dispensary. I was a medic. And so they put me in the dispensary out at the air base. And I volunteered since I wanted to be a dentist. I volunteered to be in the dental office. And I ended up doing dental exams for just a parade of people from Hill Air Force Base, the full-time airmen there. And so I was doing dental exams on a lot of people that were letting their teeth rot out on purpose because they wanted the government to buy them dentures. So I quickly decided that that is not the best way to make a living. I got to do something else. And so knowing that biology wasn't the future and dentistry wasn't the future, I went into the MBA program at the University of Utah. And that was about the same time that I was engaged to be married and I had no way to make a living. I was a waiter. Uh, at the restaurant Manoa, and I had no way to make a living other than tips. And so I really needed to do something. I had a friend at National Guard who said, why don't you try carpet cleaning? And I said, well, like I said, I didn't even know that was a thing, but tell me about it. He said, well, it's a great part-time job because you can name your own hours and you can make pretty darn good money. Hmm. I said, well, that sounds right for me, but if it's so good, why aren't you still doing it? He said, well, to tell you the truth, I really didn't like working with women. And I, I thought to myself, I don't mind working with women, so I'm going to give it a try. I borrowed his equipment, and I cleaned my own carpet in my apartment. And I said, well, that worked pretty well, and that was pretty easy. Maybe I'll do that. So I talked to my fiance, and we said, yeah, that's a good idea, because we had our wedding date set and everything. And so I borrowed... Lon, this is Lon Lynn, my friend at National Guard. I borrowed his machinery 
And I cleaned my own apartment, like I said, and that seemed to be pretty easy. So we decided we were going to go into the cleaning business. And I cleaned out Wendy's bank account and we bought our first machine. It was a Mr. Steam machine. I don't know if you are old enough to have ever seen one of those, but it, it kind of looked like R2D2, it had a little dome on top and such, but then a drag wand and everything. So we decided we were going to you know, buy that machine. We bought it and it just barely fit in the back of my Toyota Corolla. And after training, we were in the carpet cleaning business. Now, I bought this machine from a guy who was in the cleaning business. His name was Deputy Dan Harmon. That's how he advertised himself. So I went to went out to Dan's house and I got my training. It lasted for 30 minutes in his garage. And it kind of went like this. He said, all right, so here's, here's a barrel. It's a 55-gallon barrel of detergent. So he says, you take this detergent and you put one cup, if it's regular dirty, one cup in a five-gallon bucket. And if it's really dirty, you put two cups in a five-gallon bucket. And then you pour it in this receptacle and you spray forward and vacuum back with your drag wand. Okay, now I'm serious. There was not much more to it than that. Yeah. And it lasted for 30 minutes. And I went out and started disappointing people all over town. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, and I, I say that a little bit facetiously because I managed to satisfy enough people that I could stay in business for my first you know, semester in the MBA program. But anyway, I had a little bit of success, but just you know, wasn't able to attract a great deal of business while I was still in school and such. My brother, Gordon, who was just a little bit younger than I, he was pretty much in the same predicament. He didn't have two nickels to rub together. He was in college. He hadn't graduated yet, but he was in business college. And so I talked uh, Gordon into coming into business with me. Oh, I should back up just a little bit and tell you about my first couple of days in business. First of all, I was told I needed to have a business license. And so I went um, down to the county and to the licensing office. And they said, well, what's the name of your company? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't have a name. They said, well you got to have a name. So if you want to register today, what's your name of your company? So I thought real hard and said, how about Robin Wendy's Carpet Cleaning? That was my fiance. So it became Robin Wendy's Carpet Cleaning. And it, uh, I, I named it that because I wanted people who knew me and my parents to be able to recognize the company. I wanted people who knew Wendy and her parents to recognize the company. So it became Robin Wendy's Carpet Cleaning. So shortly after that, we were moving along and I talked Gordon into coming into business with me because he was in the same situation. So I had the machine and a barrel of soap and he basically donated to the company a used van. And then Gordon and I were in business and we became known as Aztec Carpet Cleaning. Aztec Carpet Cleaning for two reasons. Number one, he was sick of being called Wendy in Robin Wendy's Carpet Cleaning. Makes sense. Okay. <laughs> and then but Aztec so we could be in the front of the yellow pages. That's not a thing anymore, but in the, the yellow pages were a big deal. So we thought you want to get in the A's and Aztec kind of worked for us. So we became Aztec carpet cleaning. Okay, so anyway, Gordon was in the same position. We both got married. We both went as hard as we could. And we had a fair degree of success. I mean, the first thing we attacked was apartments, apartment complexes. They were High volume, not very much money, but high volume and regular. You could just plan 
on a good deal of business. So we, we went along and we were pretty successful at that. We were doing or had kind of under contract about a thousand apartment units that we cleaned on a regular basis whenever there was a vacancy or whatever. Um, like I said, we had a fair amount of success with that. And we went off, to, but we also went after anything that we could find in addition to that. We were, we did, we did residential, we did commercial, wherever we could. And we just did a great deal of trial and error. I'll just give you a couple of stories about trial and error because we, there was no place to get education at the time. And so we just, you know, kept working and trying and then correcting what we did wrong. I think the the toughest case that I ever had was I was working for a Mrs. Sargent and she had a, at the time it was very chic, a four inch white acrylic shag. And so I thought, well, Sure, I can do. I really thought I could do anything. I thought I was bulletproof. <laughs> I cleaned her carpet and it looked great. I went away and she called me the next morning. Said, Rob, I got a serious problem. What's that, Mrs. Sergeant? My carpet is brown. It started out white and now it's brown. And I said, Well, I thought she was kind of jerking my chain. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that could happen. But it's what we were experiencing is called brownout. And I think it still can still happen today, but with acrylic that was so non-absorbent and with high alkaline detergent, which is all I had. And it was a two scoop job. <laughs> so <laughs> I had, uh, so I put two scoops in and cleaned it with high alkaline detergent. And that sucker went so brown, you could hardly believe it. Mm-hmm. So I went out to look at it and sure enough, it was a, it was a pretty medium shade of Brown. And so I called Dan Harmon to find out. And he says, Oh yeah, I know what you're seeing. He says, that's called brownout. I said, Oh, thank heavens. So what do I do about it? He says, I don't know. <laughs> so what, what do you mean? You don't know. He says, well, I've had it happen before, but let me see if I can help you out. He says, well, I've noticed that it doesn't happen very much underneath furniture and things where it's kind of covered. It just happens more out in the open. So maybe you could try this, just kind of clean it again and then cover it with, with sheet plastic and let it dry slowly because in the places where it dries slowly, it doesn't seem to happen as much. Well, okay, I'll try anything. So I cleaned it again, again, with my high alkaline detergent and a fair amount of water and put what was called visqueen sheet plastic over it uh, to let it dry slowly. And after two days, Mrs. Sargent called and said, listen, I got a problem. I said, what's that, Mrs. Sargent? She said, where this carpet is covered up, it smells like garbage under there. Mm-hmm. We had now created a mold problem underneath her brown carpet. And she was really quite upset. I went back and tried to talk her into letting me fix it. but she said, well, it's horrible right now. Let's see if there's anything else. And I called Dan Harmon. He says, well, there is one thing you can try. There's a product called citric acid that you could possibly use. And I said, okay, where do I get that? He says that they don't sell it here. <laughs> he didn't know where citric acid would come from, except he says, I think you can order it out of California. And I thought, I am really toast here. I don't know what I'm going to do. I went back and told Mrs. Sargent I can order some stuff out of California. And she told me pretty quickly where I could go. It wasn't <laughs> California, wasn't it? 
No. But, see, the yeah, I mean, the thing is, it was just there was no place to buy citric acid that I that I or Dan knew of, and so I wasn't going to get a chance to fix it. The only thing that kept her from suing me is the fact that it was so blasted obvious that I had no money. She knew that was a, a dead end for her. So so she didn't sue me, but I did go away. But it, you learn by trial and error mm-hmm. and found out that using high alkalins on things that um, shouldn't have the high alkalins. And, but if it does happen with brownout, we learned that we could correct it with acid. You just learn as you go along. And I think that that's, that's kind of a, a key to what got us where we were is that we were willing to try virtually anything. I think the second case I had of trial and error that didn't go so well was at a restaurant called the Heather Restaurant. It was a high-end sandwich shop and it was decorated all in Scotch memorabilia, Scottish memorabilia. It had a woven Axminster carpet in a tartan plaid pattern. It was just beautiful. And so I had no idea about what could happen to woven carpet when you steam clean them. So we went ahead and steam cleaned that. And as I got about four passes out from the wall, I started hearing the the tackless strip pop off the floor. (laughs) It, it It started shrinking. And by the time I got done, it had shrunk a full four inches away from the wall. And the other thing that I learned by trial and error, mostly error, is that you can't stretch an Axminster carpet back. Impossible. So I went away <laughs> with, with a trail of, of obscenities following me. <laughs> and then, But the next time I ever laid eyes on that restaurant, I, it wasn't as a cleaner, it was as a customer. And they had sewed about a four-inch border around that carpet because I had essentially ruined it. So, again, the fact that I didn't get sued was due to the fact that I had no money, and he could see that was a dead end. But that was, I mean, that's the thing that happens. If you don't try, you're never going to experience the things that will happen to you, even if it's a trial and error situation. We just always believed that we could you know, figure out how to do anything. And so you'll have some bad things happen to you, but that's no reason not to keep trying. About this time, we learned that there was a guy named Ed York, and he was making a tour through the country teaching carpet cleaning classes. Well, Gordon and I jumped on that as fast as we could. We thought, we've got to get with somebody that knows what he's doing. And Ed came through and he had rented the the snack bar at a drive-in restaurant. That was where we got our first carpet cleaning class was sitting in the snack bar at the Redwood Drive-In. Hmm. And, and it was magic. Honestly, Ed knew a tremendous amount about carpet cleaning, solved some problems for us right off the bat. And we were the biggest fans of education after that you could possibly find. Anytime a class came through or anytime we could reasonably travel to a class, whoever was teaching it, it was, yeah, we were there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another real key to where you want to be there. You don't, I mean, you can only do trial and error so much and stay in business. You really need to get as much education as you possibly can. And, and Dane, I'll, I'll talk more about Dane and some of the other instructors later, but yeah, Dane became an instructor for us later and 
he's a, he was tremendous in the classroom and knew so much about everything he was teaching. And that's the key. You got to find people with knowledge and experience to teach you how this is done. And it will save you so much grief because had we had, we met Ed York before I cleaned Mrs. Sargent's carpets and before I cleaned that, that Axminster carpet, we would have been fine. So go after all the education you can. That's, I'm a big believer in that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, when you looked at that, and, and it's funny, Rob, because a lot of people that I've talked to who started out in those Wild West days, if you will, of the carpet cleaning industry, sure. because there wasn't a lot of information out there for you to grab onto other than what the gentleman who sold you the Mr. Steam machine was telling you. Dan Harmon says, hey, this is all you need to do. There's the soap. There's the machine. Off you go. And a lot of us learned the same way through that trial and error method. So when you finally found that, I'm interested though, you said you had about a thousand apartments under contract. Was that all done with the Mr. Steam machine or had you graduated to a different tool by that point? Okay, we we got our first truck mount. I, I mean, it was actually after we were already there and such, it was just, I mean, we moved pretty fast. And as soon as truck mounts became available, uh, we got our first one. You know, as soon as we possibly could, but we still had to do a lot of that because some of them were in high rises and things like that. So we still had to do a lot of it with Mr. Steam, but we moved to the truck mount just as quick as we could. And we had a reasonable amount of success in you know going out and selling our work and such. And the truck mount helped a tremendous amount. Another contract that we had was with the Snowbird Ski Resort. They would close down in the spring and in the fall for two weeks at a time. And we would have to go in and clean every carpet at this ski resort. Mm. And they had a lot of, they had a lot of restaurants. They had hotels and condos and such. I mean, we cleaned nonstop for two weeks to get this all done. And by that time we were able to hire some help. We figured out that our body wasn't going to last through a career of this. And so we had to hire some help and we had some employees that we you know, were able to train and such, but we had, I mean, we had some really good people even in the beginning that we worked with. In fact, there was a guy named Doug Taylor who started out in those snowbird years and worked for us for probably 25 years after that. And he became Gordon's assistant as we got into other areas of the company that we'll tell you about coming up. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we had some really good success and then we got a break and this was a turning point in our company. And that's when Gordon had a contact, I think it was his father-in-law that knew the manager of a major, the major department store in Salt Lake City called ZCMI. Well, we approached him with the idea that we would like to become a division of ZCMI and have what you call a lease department and clean carpets under the name of ZCMI. And we actually did land that gig and that turned out to really enhance both our revenue and our reputation because now we had our own cleaning division, plus we had this lease department for ZCMI. It really took off nicely from there. So we were really pleased with that. At any rate, we had a lot of business going on with ZCMI and our own carpet cleaning company, Aztec Carpet Cleaning and such. And we were flying pretty high. I got to back up just a little bit and tell you about what really finished off college for me and led me into full-time carpet cleaning. Mm-hmm. 
because, and this was, this was kind of a big deal because I was in the MBA program and I had a class called statistics and analysis and it was not natural for me. It was just so hard. It required more math than I had ever thought of doing. And so I just worked so hard in that class and ended up on my final with a C minus. But the interesting thing about taking that final test was our professor gave us a little audio tape and he said, I want you to put a, you know, give me an audio tape so that I can make comments about your final test. Well, I did that. And when this audio tape came back, I got a C minus on the test. And he told me on my audio tape, Mr. Hanks, I think you should seriously consider your quantitative abilities before continuing in the MBA program. <laughs> wow. That's <laughs> good. So I, I seriously considered my quantitative abilities for about 10 minutes and said, I am not going to pay these people any more money to make me feel like crap. I'm just not going to do it. Anyway, I talked to Gordon and he was having the same kind of experience. He's probably more successful, but he wasn't in the MBA program yet, but he was having the same kind of experience. We just decided that we were going to quit college and go full-time into carpet cleaning. And that provided what was probably the worst day of mom and dad's life up to that point, <laughs> where sure. their two brilliant sons were going to quit college to be carpet cleaners. And that they weren't big believers in that as a concept. Now, but so we, we got through that little hurdle. The next was explaining it to our wives. Wow. And I went and talked to Wendy and Gordon went and talked to Jane. And I promised Wendy, I said, look, if you're okay with me quitting college to go full time into the business, because the business was really doing okay. College wasn't so good, but the business was doing pretty well. I said, if you're okay with me quitting college and going full time, I promise you that I will be the biggest carpet cleaner in Utah. And that was as high as my goals went right then. Mm. And so she said, you know, to her credit, I mean, she's a world-class risk taker. I mean, she was good with that and excited about it. And so Gordon and I quit college, went full-time, and that promise only took about two years to keep. Wow. We, were, we were the biggest carpet cleaner in Utah in about, I mean, about two years. And that's Utah's not a big state, but that was – yeah, we thought still, that was something, but this yeah. combination of um, ZCMI and Aztec carpet cleaning was a, a pretty dang successful deal. So at that point, one of our customers came to us with a product called Fabricare. It was a fabric protection product. And he said, this is so cool. Let me show you what it does. And he showed us how fabric protector work. It was a solid-based flora chemical. And it was really impressive in demonstrations. And so we looked that over, talked to him about what we want to do. And we decided we were going to go into business with Butch and in Fabricare. We started doing that and we started calling on interior designers. And that became pretty successful pretty quickly because with the, the interior designers would recommend to their people that they were putting new furniture and new carpet in that they have it protected. And then, and it was hugely profitable okay? hmm. for very easy labor, hugely profitable. And then we kept going in that for a little while. And it was one of the magic parts of that was that we would give a, a three-year warranty that said, look, if you get a, 
a stain or something on your furniture or your carpet that you can't get out with this little bottle of cleaner we're going to give you, then you call us and we'll come out and get it out. And if we can't get it out, we'll give your money back. And that went on for years and it was very successful. And interestingly enough, only a few times did we run into something we couldn't get the stain out. Mm -hmm. But the cool thing was that we would say, okay, we'll come out and get it out. And when we couldn't get it out, we could say, well, if you want your money back, we can do that. Or you can keep this service where anytime you get a spot or a stain, you can't get out, we'll come out and do it for free. And I think we only had two or three people in 10 years of doing that actually wanted their money back. Most of them just stayed on with us. But anyway, that was a lot of fun and a very profitable sure. division of the company. Sure. So I want to ask a question, but about the marketing process that you and Gordon put together. So uh, I want to do that. But right now we got to take a break and hear from one of our advertisers. So okay. we're going to do that. And then we'll come back with Rob and we'll talk about uh, the marketing approach that they took early on in the Aztec carpet cleaning. We'll be right back on the Keep It Clean podcast after this message. Carpet Cleaner America's counter-rotating brush technology began in Austria in 1979 and continues today to be a force in the industry all across the world. Our CRV machines are sold in over 58 countries and several territories. These machines are legendary, dependable, and built to last a lifetime and perhaps longer. With all that history comes a bit of wisdom. Our machines are dependable enough to help you get more from your carpet cleaning process. Use our Pro or TM series machines to accomplish any number of tasks in your clients' homes or businesses. From carpet to tile, to vinyl floors, and yes, even hardwood, with our dry compound cleaning media, Carpet Cleaner America machines work on them all. From pile lifting to deep vacuuming, from agitating your pre-spray before extraction cleaning, to low moisture encapsulation. From carpet to tile, we brush it all, and we pick it up too. Ask your local distributor for an Austrian machine made to last a lifetime, or find us at carpetcleaner-usa.com. Hey, we're back on the Keep It Clean podcast with Rob Hanks, and we were uh, talking about his transition from Robin Wendy's Carpet Care into Aztec Carpet Cleaning and some of the things that happened. But I always like to go back and think of the thought processes. You started out with apartments. You had a lot of apartments that you were doing, and a lot of people start that way. But how did you transition to go to think of ski resorts and other things like that? Was it just location because you were located in Utah? Or was there an actual plan that you guys developed to say, we're going to market to these places? How did that look? Okay, so for our entire career, I would say we were a combination of planning and opportunism. The opportunism, we, we just tried to jump on every opportunity that looked reasonable. The marketing, the way that we did it is, okay, Gordon, I need to back up just a little bit to tell you how we got started in distribution because it all kind of happened together like this. Okay. Okay. So the way that we got into distribution is that Gordon was in a class and they were talking about different accessories and things like that. He was a student in the class and they were talking about what could be done, maybe if someone could think of how to do this. So after the class, he just went home and invented the Hydroforce sprayer. And this was a sprayer 
that was revolutionary because it would, and I think probably everybody that's listening probably has one. Mm-hmm. It would spray the carpet. It would spray your pre-spray down hot. It would meter it and spray it fast. And so it was an instant success. And basically everybody wanted one. We basically started selling those and we picked up a line of, of carpet cleaning equipment and chemicals from ProChem. We decided that Gordon would run this new distribution end of our company and selling products because you couldn't, there wasn't a good supply place in Utah. So we thought, well, by opportunism, we'll just do this. You know, we'll, we'll get some ProChem stuff. We'll sell machines. We'll sell chemicals and things. And we'll go in the distribution business thinking that mostly we would supply ourselves. Mm, and, sure. and because we didn't have a good supply place either. We just decided we would go and be in the distribution business. And that started off pretty well. And the cleaners in town were happy to have a place to, to buy their stuff. All right. So about the just... A little bit after that is when Butch came along. We went into fabric protection. And then our marketing was largely me going and doing selling. Gordon was the distribution end, and I was in charge of the cleaning and the fabric protection. And so I would go and call on interior designers and get them to refer us. And they would they referred us for the fabric protection and for cleaning. We thought that we could clean anything, and we were steeped in education by now. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty confident that we ran into some of the trickiest stuff you'd ever want to see because these interior designers were designing for looks and not for durability and such. But that made our business even better because we could say, look, you can put in white canvas sofas. You can put in silk drapes. You can put in whatever you want, Mr. Designer, and we'll make it practical. And... That was pretty much magic for them. We really took off and made a name for ourselves in the local market, which you know, which was a lot of fun. We did run into some serious snags about this point. Number one, somebody sued us for trademark infringement for the word fabric here. And, and so we thought, ah, geez, and what are we going to do now? So we went to an attorney and said, okay, what do we do? These people have sued us for trademark infringement. He looked it up and sure enough, they had a trademark on the word fabric hair. We said, well, what do we do? And they said, he says, okay, we can fight this. What you have to do, it'll cost you about $10,000 to fight this. And then you'll have to change your name or you can go ahead and change your name. (laughs) So so we decided, well, maybe it's cheaper and better just to change our name. But that's always a blow when you have to Mm -hmm. change your name because you have to you know, kind of start over. So we came up with the name ProGuard and that was a really good name. We redid all of our brochures and everything and went along for about another year before we got sued again for trademark infringement. We weren't going to pay the $10,000 again. So we said, we got to change our name, but we said, what on earth are we going to do here? Cause we've got to find a name that nobody's going to sue us for trademark infringement. We've been through that enough. So let's think of a name that we can do. So we had earlier, we had incorporated our company under the name of Bridgewater Corporation. And we were clever enough to name it Bridgewater because that's a street that I lived on. We we put a lot of thought process into some of our our marketing things. 
And so now we're trying to think of a name for our service company and our protector. And so we came up with the name Bridgepoint. And because it was kind of a takeoff of Bridgewater and Gordon, and by that time, Dave was in the business with us. Our younger brother, Dave, came in the business. He'd been on a two-year LDS mission. And so we were really busy and we recruited him to run the cleaning business for us while I did fabric protection and sales and Gordon did distribution. And that provided the actual worst day of my mom and dad's life when we talked him out of going to college at all. Your poor mom. I I can't even imagine your poor mom at this point. (laughs) And you met my mom, so you understand. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, it was it was pretty funny, but they did not find the humor in that at all. We brought Dave on. Turned out to be a, a really good decision because we we just figured that the three of us put together comprised one pretty good businessman. (laughs) <laughs> so, but it took three of us to get there. So we went ahead with that. We changed our name again and went with the name Bridgepoint. Nobody ever sued us for trademark infringement again, which was good, but it became a pretty good name. And especially in the fabric protection area, Bridgepoint Protector with all the people that were referring us, furniture stores were referring us, upholsters were referring us, interior designers all over the place were referring us because we could make their installations practical. And so it really, it took off just beautifully. And the cleaning company was doing great. The distribution company was suffering a little bit for one reason. And the reason that the distribution company was suffering is that we were competing with our customers. We were asking our local cleaners to buy from us their supplies, and then they would run into us on a bid. And whenever we want to bid from them, they would say, why am I buying from these jerks? We had to you know, basically make some decisions. And we had a thriving cleaning and fabric protection business. And the distribution, though, we thought was kind of our future, just because we could do that on a national basis. And so we decided we would take the risk. And we, my wife and I went up to uh, just kind of traded out a room with, with Snowbird Resort. And we just spent a weekend talking about an idea called the Bridgepoint Cleaning Network. And this was a way that we were going to sell off our cleaning business one piece at a time. So Wendy and I talked that over. I went back and talked to Dave and Gord about it on Monday after this long weekend and said, here's what I think we do. We take our cleaning business and we sell it off one job at a time. When anybody calls us, If any of our cleaners want to join the Bridgepoint Cleaning Network, they can join by basically they don't have to pay us anything except for a percentage of that first job. And so we sold our cleaning business off one job at a time. And but it engendered a lot of loyalty in the distribution business because now those guys didn't feel bad about buying their supplies from us and we were no longer their competitor. Hmm. So, but here's, here's a lesson that I think might help other people. You've got to take some risks in life. You know, this was a gigantic risk that the distribution company would make up for the lost revenue. And I'm talking in terms of, you know, revenue around the late 1970s, the kind of revenue that we gave up, like we gave up $40,000 a month in revenue. And that was, I mean, that was something that really got your nerves on edge. 
to think of that. So we had to be successful in the other areas to make up for that. But it it engendered the loyalty, allowed us to have a successful distribution business that we were able to grow later on into into something I think was pretty cool Mm -hmm. at this point um, and hydroforce distribution business. Wow. So, so you turn, you turn that negative action because I mean, 40,000 a month, that's a half a million dollars a year, almost in, in revenue that you're, uh, basically giving away for a small percentage of it to build the other side of your business. There was obviously a plan in place. And I think that's one of the things that I believe that a lot of the smaller carpet cleaning companies and yourself and myself in the beginning of our careers here, we didn't really focus on a lot of the planning aspect of things. We just, like you said, we were opportunistic. We saw an opportunity here. We saw an opportunity there. But it takes a while to gain that momentum to get rolling. As you moved into the distribution side, it sounds like you went more into the planning phase of here's where we're going to go and and here's how we're going to do it so that you had a roadmap to take you rather than just looking for opportunities then, right? Yes, uh, that's that's exactly what happened, Dane, is we really had to have a plan because you're giving up that kind of revenue and you had to know where you were going in order to feel okay about giving that up because we were going to take a, a cut in pay that was significant for a short time. To look into the future and say, what could we make out of this business took some real thought process and planning. And Yeah, if you're interested, I can kind of tell you what that looked like. We said, okay, what we need to do is we need to go in the distribution business, but we're going to have to do it on a national basis rather than just local. Because local, there's no way that local could provide the or could make up for that Mm -hmm. revenue loss. We had to have a plan to go national. Now, Gordon's invention, the Hydroforce, had already put us on the map. The problem with the Hydroforce is usually when you have an invention, it has some planned obsolescence to it. Here's how long it will last, and then we'll sell a whole bunch more of these. The problem with the Hydroforce is that with a couple of small parts, you could make that thing last forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'll bet you that people, yeah, they could still be operating some of the original Hydroforces that were sold. And so, we, yeah, we could tell that we were not going to be able to sell a really large number of hydroforces just because once somebody had one, unless they added another truck, they didn't need another one. No. So that was that was one of our problems that we had to face. So we said, well, why not, since we already have almost every distributor in the country is a distributor of the hydroforce sprayer, let's see what else we can sell them. Then, you know, we went to work trying to find other accessories and things that we could sell. And that was not easy to do, but it was very doable because people would look at us pretty seriously. If we had a a distribution network of over 100 distributors, then they would look at it and say, well, maybe we can sell them their corner guards and such, and, and they can distribute it for them. So we became, over the years, very successful in being the go-to place for accessories in the cleaning industry. Because what we could do is we could put, you know, we could sell them all kinds of different things on just one shipment. And that made a big deal to the distributors. So the distributors became good customers and good fans of ours. It started with the Hydroforce and ended up being more than that. Mm-hmm. became the go-to place for, for accessories. And then never being willing to stand still, (laughs) 
we were, Gordon and I had kind of a funny relationship. And Dave was, you know, casting the deciding vote sometimes. But Gordon was known as the brakes and I was known as the engine. There was no place I didn't think we could go in a hurry as long as we just put more gas in the tank. <laughs> and Gordon was always very much more cautious. And I mean, his job was to slow me down in my thought process. And we had a fabulous partnership that way because I was forceful enough in one direction to, if I thought it was good enough, I just had to sell it. And if Gordon thought it was garbage, then his job was to stop it. And we both had a lot of success in our areas, both in you know getting projects through and in stopping it. And mm-hmm. I'll just, I'll give you one thing that, I mean, one of our trial and error things early on, this is a, just, I think, an entertaining story. When we had that ZCMI carpet care, ZCMI was a very important department store in our area, and they had a fabulous reputation and such. But I told you our wives were always very supportive, and there were only a couple of times that my wife ever said, don't do that. That's ridiculous. And one was on a real estate investment. She turned out to be absolutely right. The second one was when we decided that we were going to get an automatic dialer or a robocaller because we needed to be able to contact more customers. And we had this fabulous name identification with ZCMI Carpet Care. So we bought a robocaller and with it came kind of the the fake voices that they would do. And at that time, actually, we if you remember Paul Lind, from like the match game and things mm-hmm. like that. He was, he was a comedian. And so our call, you know, our, the, the tape that they played was, hello, this is Paul Lind from ZCMI Carpet Care and in his funny voice. And, and it was really pretty effective for about two weeks. And after we'd had it for a couple of weeks, one of us, and I'm pretty darn sure it was Gordon, set the timer wrong, and it started calling people at midnight and called them until three in the morning. Oh, no. <laughs> so, okay, so the next morning, the ZCMI switchboard lit up like a Christmas tree. Oh, boy. I mean, they, everybody that we had called was calling to complain. And so we got a call from the president of ZCMI. He says, I need you in my office in 30 minutes. We didn't know what was going on. But when we got there, he played us some of the complaints that he had had. He says, here's the thing. (laughs) You've been good so far for cleaning division and such, but you're going to get rid of that automatic machine within the next half hour or you're done. <laughs> so we, we unplugged that thing never to have it run again. That was one of the, the big mistakes. But again, if you don't try stuff, you're never going to get anywhere. So you've got to be willing to take some risks to be able to get where you want to be. It's a big part of business taking risks. And we had a great business and we had our divisions now, but we were going on a national basis based on the hydroforce deal and then i know we're probably we're probably getting close to the end of our interview but i can just tell you just a couple of other things about the growth i know that we want to talk mostly about the early years but the next thing that we did was we thought well let's try adding chemicals to our repertoire and so we went to prochem 
And we said, okay, we're, we're selling your machines and such, but would you consider private labeling a product or two for us that we could sell under the Bridgepoint name? Because we have a lot of local business and we have a lot of national business. And we think that we could be pretty successful selling this. Jim Roden was the president of ProChem at the time. And he decided, he made the decision that, yeah, we'll, we'll give that a try because it was going to be more revenue for him and such. And it, he later said in an interview that that was probably the worst decision he ever made in business <laughs> was private labeling for Bridgepoint because I mean, a couple of years later, we were a pretty serious competitor for him. Mm-hmm. That was kind of how we got started into the chemical business. So we had pretty well exited the carpet cleaning and the fabric protection and focused on distribution. And it, it went from there and it went for 42 years. Wow. So, you brought in so much in that context of how you guys work together, you being the engine, Gordon being the brakes. I feel now for Dave more than I ever have in the past, having to be in between you two guys trying to figure out which way are we actually going here. Right. And, 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 but I get that. I understand that yin and that yang. You've got to have somebody that's the voice of reason, somebody that's looking for opportunities, somebody that says, hey, nothing's impossible. We can, we can go ahead and do this. And then somebody else just kind of being the calm person in the room, taking this all in and, and trying to figure out which way to vote, I, I would imagine. So the, the story is fascinating because it came from a, a small place where you were opportunistic and looking at, at taking risks. So being in this industry, you can't be risk averse. You, you've got to look at it, calculate it, because here's what I took from that. You took the weakest division that you had, and that became your future. You know, you said that that division was struggling and the other parts were doing pretty well. And, and this division was something that you were going to, that you saw as your future. So obviously there's some visioning involved in this too, where you think, okay, we can go to that. I was actually uh, in the industry for a couple of years and we started getting your uh, pamphlets in the mail. We noticed the, the quality of them would increase all the time. At first it was copies on a page and sometimes they weren't exactly straight and but it had the information that you needed and the accessories that everybody wanted to have. The, the little leather pouch for your duckbill napping shears with the little sheath for that, along with uh, you had a little spotter bottle that had Velcro around it. They would attach to that. So you had a little spotter with you all the time. So those little thing, corner guards, uh, foam blocks for a while too, if I recall, yes. uh, the, the blue blocks. And so there were just so many little things that carpet cleaners needed that you came up with. And so you did those vertical extensions of, hey, we started with this, then we moved to this, and then all of a sudden you just exploded onto the market. So excellent. Good yeah. work. <laughs> well, thank, thank you so much. It was it was a great ride. I mean, we were very, very happy. I mean, it was it's pretty unusual to find a family partnership that will stick together for 42 years. And I can give you the secret to that is you find partners you can trust mm-hmm. and you can trust them and they have similar work ethics. If you can get partner, I'm not saying that a family partnership is always a good idea. In fact, it's usually not from what I've heard from other people, but my brothers were great. I could always trust them. I could take a vacation and my income didn't suffer. And, but we all worked our butts off to get where we eventually ended up. And so similar work ethics and high level of trust and a partnership can really work. Sure. So based on all that and all the time that you had going from Robin Wendy's carpet care, getting out of the dentistry idea, probably the hard way, 
disappointing your parents along the way, at least early on, they probably at the end thought, well, the boys did okay. But talking your little brother out of even going to college, I'm sure there was a, a lot of family discussions about that. So all of the things that you did, if if you were restarting today and, and you were you know looking to move into this industry, is there some advice you could give to somebody who may be in that space right now that's just trying to get started? Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I, I've got a couple of things. But before I do that, I, there's one more kind of funny story speaking of my mom and her disappointment in us, and which was a really longstanding program, her disappointment in her sons. But the, as we got more and more successful, we would have, you know, we had a lot of distributors and we would have distributor meetings where we would bring people into Salt Lake, put them up in a hotel and do like two or three days of training and then have a banquet. So for entertainment, we decided to invite my mom to, to the banquet. And she was in her 90s at this point. And so we invited her to the banquet and she was sitting next to me at the banquet. And she kind of elbowed me like this and, you know, said, Robbie, are you paying for all these people's dinner? <laughs> well, mom, we actually are. But see that guy sitting over there at the at the round table and such? He ordered a half million dollars in product from us last year. We can afford to buy him dinner. <laughs> and then and then we asked her to speak. And she got up to the microphone and, and she walks up and says, she looks around the room and says, Well. I guess my sons are successful and nobody's more surprised than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a mom to just kind of drop the mic at that point. Oh, oh exactly. That's, yeah. That's her, her disappointment was not going to die easily. <laughs> she was cute, but she was, the distributors loved her and loved to hear from her just for lines like that. So anyway, that was, it was a long road, but I do have some advice that I'd love to, to share. I guess the first thing is education has to play about the most important role of anything. You've got to be educated in your trade. You've got to be educated in how to run a business. You've just got to go after as much education as you can possibly get. And it really, really pays off. I'll just give you one really good example. Okay, this is about the simplest thing in the world, but I was in a class and somebody shared this idea with me that I used when we were cleaning the governor's mansion. You know, I told you interior designers recommend this for everything. And so an interior designer recommended us to clean all their delicate stuff and then protect it at the governor's mansion. And so I was up there doing the bid for them and they had two matching calfskin chairs. It was kind of a calfskin suede. And it just had a seat pad and then two little arm pads on each chair. And they asked if we could clean that. And I said, certainly, I, no, I can do that. But it's pretty delicate work. I'm going to have to take it into the shop. And it'll be about a week before we can get it back to you, if that's okay. And it'll be about $300 a piece. These were valuable chairs. They were obviously designer chairs. And so they said, well, okay, $300 doesn't sound like a great deal. But back then, that was big. I took him back to the shop and I handed the technician a large pink pearl pencil eraser. And I said, here, take this and just erase the dirt off these chairs. And he took that eraser, took him about 20 minutes to do both chairs, and they looked like a million bucks. And I had picked that up in a class. I never would have thought of that idea. 
but just the you'll pick something up in every single class you go to. And education was such a key, everything. Dane was such a big part of our company. He traveled for us. He was, I mean, Dane, wasn't your position, weren't you the director of education for us? Or because you actually worked for us at one point. I did, but I, I was the commercial sales manager. Okay, commercial sales manager. But, but I also, did training on the side, yeah. Yeah, but he did but he did train he did a lot of training for us on the side he was just magic in the classroom we had dane gregory we had uh you know, doug heiferman that we introduced to training in the industry and he's gone on to be relatively famous and tony macaluso and i could find the names of a dozen others that that taught for us but this education was how we got on the map and i'll tell you you cannot forego your education in any way. You've got to you got to learn how to run a business. You've got to learn how to do your trade, and don't ever ignore your education. Here's another thing that I would advise you. I never considered myself a carpet cleaner. I was a businessman in the carpet cleaning industry, and you have to change your mindset to think of yourself as a businessman because so many of our customers when we were in distribution, so many of the guys thought they were making money because they were busy, but they were just you know, burning tire rubber. And you have to learn about the business and you have to be willing to pay attention to the business. Don't be a carpet cleaner, be a businessman in your chosen field. And I felt that every day of my early life in cleaning because all of my friends were going to college and getting jobs in banks where they could wear a suit and sit behind the counter or whatever. And they would make fun of me for being a, a janitor. I, I never really got after him for that, but I did think to myself, I'm pretty dang sure that none of you are making 50 bucks an hour. And that's because that's what I was doing in the cleaning business. And again, that, that's 1975 numbers. And so that was a very big deal back then. And it set the, the tone for much better things to come. One last thing. In terms of expansion, because mm -hmm. every carpet cleaner says, I need, I got to do something to get bigger. And the usual thing is to buy your next truck mount or to open a new division or to buy a building or whatever it is. We always had a philosophy that paid off for us. And that's don't expand until it hurts too much not to. If we needed more office space, we crammed in until it was so painful that we had to do something. If we needed another truck mount, we brutalized ourselves with extra hours, extra jobs and things until it was too painful not to expand and then we would expand. And that's a pretty good lesson for any business. Don't expand until it hurts too much not to. I could give advice all day long, but I love the industry. It was a great, great, great career. And it can start small and turn into something really cool. You just have to think about it and plan and then execute. Yeah, it was fun to watch your process go through. I watched it from the sidelines for a long time. And I knew other people in the industry more than I knew what you three brothers were doing. But as I got to know you, as I got to see you at different events and trade shows and everything else, and then got into your academic faculty to be part of that group. I just remember when I came out the first time to Salt Lake City, you guys treated me like I was some sort of royalty. 
And, and I was just so taken aback by that because it hadn't happened anywhere else I'd ever been. But you really, not so much that, but you took me very seriously. We sat down, we had serious talks, we had serious meetings about where we wanted to go. And I always appreciated that. When I came to work for you guys, I'd never been in a corporate environment before up until that point. And I was just excited that someone else besides my family might have seen something and say, hey, we want to hire this guy. So I really appreciate that. You change the industry the way a lot of people look at it just by being somebody who was opportunistic and, and seeing what was out there. But then you also brought that information and those things to other people in the industry. And that I think is something that a lot of people don't know because you were never one for really grabbing the spotlight. You didn't step up and go, hey, I'm Rob Hanks, and don't you know who I am? And you never really had that. I would watch you at trade shows, and when you spoke to somebody, you were 100% present in that conversation. And I know from somebody who speaks to a lot of people at trade shows, that's really hard to do because you've got so many other people that are trying to grab your time and, and, and your attention. And that the fact that you were always 100% focused with that customer really speaks a lot to how uh, you guys operated your business. So, and you did a lot for me personally. So I thank you for that also. Well, I appreciate it, Dane. And that's maybe one last comment. And I think that what Dane is saying is a key to, to business to treat people right make them feel important. Let me tell you, just never cheat anybody. In your business life, Gordon, Dave, and I sat down and we made a goal early on that we would never cheat anybody. We had a lot of people unhappy with us about decisions we made, but we don't recall ever cheating anybody because your reputation is what's going to carry you through the rough times. And so always treat people correctly, never cheat anybody, and you'll do great. Wonderful. Well, Rob, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I know the listeners of the Keep It Clean podcast are going to get a lot of information from this, uh, a lot of inspiration, which is why we do these things is to, to let people know that we all started kind of the same way. We all struggled. We all had difficult decisions to make and things to learn. You never finished learning in your entire career. I don't believe I'm still yeah. learning things as, as we go through today. Thank you for sharing your story and thank you for not trashing your brothers as we were going to give you the opportunity to do that, but you didn't. So that's good because maybe they'll listen to it now and think, well, that Rob's not such a bad guy after all. That's good to hear. <laughs> well, a lot of times I'll just call him up to trash him. It's just fun. There you go. There you go. That's well, you know, and Gordon was always fun for he's such a funny person, but I don't know that it's really intentional. When him and Tom would do the things at the distributor meeting, Tom Forsyth, which was the chemist, oh, yeah. those in, interactions were just some of the most hilarious things I've ever seen in my life. And I know they weren't planned to be that way. But he just comes off that way. The differences in the personalities. And like you said, you're the engine. He was the brakes. And Dave was the poor guy sitting in the car. Not sure which way we were all going. But I know he had a lot to do with it, too, on the restoration side and kind of push that division in the right way. So we won't, uh, you know, we'll kind of leave it at that. But again, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, it was a pleasure, Dane. And thank you so much. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was Rob Hanks. Rob, thanks very much for doing this. I really appreciate you telling your story to everybody so we could hear it. It was different than what I thought it was going to be, so I learned a couple of things along the way myself. And hopefully, the listeners, you find out something that you didn't know about Rob. Another edition of the Keep It Clean podcast is complete. I hope you find our topics and guests refreshing and inspiring. I also hope that you will like, subscribe, and give us a review. And please don't miss a single episode. I'm your host, Dane Gregory. Wishing you well in your cleaning and restoration endeavors. As always, 
Thanks for listening, and remember, keep it clean.